Father in heaven, thank you that we have this wonderful privilege to study the Word of God, and we also have the gift of the spirit of prophecy that has been provided for us to guide us and to prepare us for the coming crisis. We pray that your spirit, most importantly, will be present in this room today and that you will guide what I say and what we hear. May we learn together. May we be prepared together for the return of Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Yesterday we spent some time talking about preparation for the final crisis in the light of the events going on in the world today. We spent the early part of our time talking about the events that go back to late 1700s and early 1800s that are clearly marking a delineation between what has gone on before and entering into the last days, the final days before Jesus returns. As you will recall, especially those of you who are studying, and I know you all are, studying the Sabbath school lesson, you know that this issue of delay in First Peter and Second Peter is discussed. And these delay, this delay that's going on has people challenged, trying to figure out how is it that this delay still means that Jesus is coming. But Peter reminds us that with God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. For you and I, who just in that little brief period of time of 60 or 70 years, or by reason of strength more, it seems like this is forever. But when we live 80 years or 90 years, this is not forever. There are some chairs over on the far side, over here, so there are some places. Come on in, we're glad to have you. Uh, with, a, with God, time doesn't work like it does for us. And he is wanting us to know, don't give up. It's coming. You know, we're like little children waiting for Christmas. Christmas never shows up, does it? It just, you know, I mean, we've been waiting for 10 days already. Where's Christmas, you know? And we sometimes are like that. So we talked yesterday about the events that are going on now that really help to put it into perspective, that there are things happening now so quickly that we as Seventh-day Adventist Christians need to be paying close attention because things are happening so quickly. The stress I placed yesterday is we're not saved by events. The events will not save us. Our knowledge of the events will not save us. We may die in our knowledge of the events. We might die eternally with the knowledge of the events. Because it's not the events that save us, it's Jesus who saves us. He is our Savior. But in His mercy and His kindness, He wants us to know that His promise in John 14 is going to be fulfilled. And 
is in the process of being fulfilled. And we're almost there when it will be finally fulfilled and Jesus will return. His promise is valid. As truly as the miracles he performed on this earth, as truly as the people he saved from sin, is his promise that he is wanting to save us from sin as well. Today I want to take us into a part that you may say, you know, I, I, I was going to ask you, so I, I guess I will. You really want to go on with this class? What we did yesterday was the fun part. Is there a fun part? Now it's time to start thinking seriously about what Jesus wants to do in our hearts and lives. And that means change. It means every one of us are going to need to change. And it means that people like me who stand up and teach classes about needing to change are also going to need to change. So today we're going to be talking about the Reformation that's needed and the Laodicean message that we are told is going to bring about this final Reformation. This is the part that we really need to understand we're going to get into some of the things that come on the heels of this <clears throat> in our days that follow. You've seen the outline in the, in the little booklet that's out there, what we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about more about the shaking and those kinds of issues that go on within the church. We're going to be talking about uh, the, the events that surround the return of Christ and all that goes along with that. But we must first recognize that there is a reformation to come. And if we are to be prepared, we must be part of that reformation. The reformation must be going on in our hearts and our lives. Ellen White says this in uh, second volume of Spiritual Gifts. She says, I saw that the testimony to the Laodiceans applied to God's people at the present time. Yes, at her time, and yes, in our time as well. One of the things that I learned by studying the material that Ron Duffield has prepared and is sharing here on the campground as well, is that God wanted to do something special with his people back in 1888 and the years that follow. That God's people resisted that. And so when she makes a statement like this, she's talking about them then that she wanted, that God wanted to do that work for. And now you and I are still here. That means he still wants to do that work. That means now is the time for this to happen. She continues to say it was designed to arouse the people of God, to discover to them their backslidings, and to lead to zealous repentance, that they might be favored with the presence of Jesus and be fitted for the loud cry of the third angel. It was designed to arouse them to the issues in their lives, to discover to them their backslidings, to lead to zealous repentance, and that they might be favored with the presence of Jesus. Is that good news or is that good news? It's not, I don't want to know about my sins, but I need to know about them, and I need to zealously repent, and I need to be prepared. 
Ellen White says in volume one of Selected Messages, page 121, up here on your screen, uh, it, uh, it says, A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. That is a very well-known statement. But I dare say we're not taking it as seriously as we need to. We're not realizing that this is exactly what God wants to do for us, is to bring in among us a revival of true godliness. I am concerned. You should be too. That the Seventh-day Adventist Church is dealing with issues that have nothing to do with a revival of true godliness. This is our greatest need. Some of the things that are being thrown around in the church, and I'm, I haven't identified what they are. I just said some of the things that are being thrown around in the church are not the kinds of things that are needed here. God wants this is our greatest need, and he wants to help us. To seek this should be our first work. This should be the work that we are seeking to have happen in our lives. There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessing of the Lord, not because God is not willing to bestow His blessing upon us, but because we are unprepared to receive it. This should be getting our attention. It should be our concern. It should be the matter of our devotional life every day. And I don't mean to obsess about it, but I mean it should be the focus and our understanding that this is indeed our greatest need. Ellen White says, and I wish I had time to go through every single statement in in depth, but we do have the references here. You can look them up, and that will be able to give you some guidance. But uh, she says in Christian Service, page 482, Reformation must accompany revival. There are a lot of things that go on pretending to be... A couple more chairs needed, I think, out there. There's one more left. Okay, we're good. I'll let people find it. When you're at the door and you see people, point them towards the chairs. That'd be great. A revival of true godliness may be our greatest need, but it, that revival includes reformation. Reformation doesn't only imply change, it means change. There is going to need to be a change in our hearts, in our minds, and what is that change? That's what we're here to talk about today. Ellen White tells us, Great Controversy, page 464, that the greatest revival since Pentecost is coming. Wow. Don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to see that today in your church where you live, worship, and serve? Don't you want to see that in your church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, in Michigan, in North America, in the world? Then it needs to be the focus of our prayers. It needs to be our commitment. It needs to be where God is leading us. Some of the challenges we need to keep in mind in relationship to Reformation and to change that God wants to bring about is the devil gets this too. You understand what I'm saying? He knows what the Bible says. (laughs) 
He's had 6,000 years, whatever, to study it. You and I have had how many years? 60? You know, and he's got a pretty good brain to go along with it. So he studied this all out, and he's been planning all along his steps in relationship to what he needs to do to counterbalance that. In the Reformation that we call the Protestant Reformation that came about, Satan knew it was coming. Satan saw it as it arrived. Satan had already prepared the ground to be able to work with it. And some of the things we're talking about here is exactly what he did. But we turn around and we call what happened next, especially as the Roman Catholic Church responded to the Protestant Reformation, we call that the Counter-Reformation. What the Roman Catholic Church did in order to try to push back the Protestant Reformation. Well, God knows what he is seeking to lead his people to, and Satan has an idea of what it is that God's going to do, and so he's already preparing his counter-reformation for our own time. He's not only pushing back the Protestant Reformation in 2017 in a very real way, but he knows there's a real revival just like Pentecost and a Reformation just like Pentecost that's about to come, and he's preparing the ground now for that. What tools does he use? He uses things like, as he did in history, he uses obstacles that can be brought into the way. Paul says Ellen White in Great Controversy 396, wherever the apostle raised up a church, there were some who professed to receive the faith, but who brought in heresies that if received would eventually crowd out the love of the truth. Did you catch that? This is the challenge that we are facing today in a very real way in Michigan and the United States. It's happening in alarming ways, and it's going to start becoming even more visible in the days ahead. A former Seventh-day Adventist minister who even happened to pastor in Michigan some years ago, no longer in Michigan, and... That's all I'll say about that part of it. Posted something on the internet recently and said, people are going to be shocked because I'm telling you what I believe and there are other people like me who believe what I believe and you're going to be surprised. And what he believes is not what Seventh-day Adventists believe. All right? And I'm not going down that road today because I don't want to get off on a sidetrack. I'm telling you that these kinds of things can be expected we are warned about them, and they will come. They will come with fanatical strength. I had to go back to the dictionary to remind myself, what is fanaticism? Fanaticism is mentioned a little bit further down here, but it comes in the same category with heresies. It is people who become fanatically focused on something, zealously engaged in some belief, some religious belief, some whatever belief, that they, they'll focus in on that no matter what happens. And, and, and they lose balance. 
It happened during the Reformation. It happened to Martin Luther. He had the same problem. He was getting on with the Reformation process and turning people back to the Word of God and teaching people about righteousness by faith in, in, and uh, righteousness not by works but by faith in Jesus. And these people started to come up out of the woodwork. The devil brings them out with all kinds of heresies that are also fanaticism. So he, he uses these tools to create a spirit of discord and strife. Sometimes it's through heresy. Other times it's through the color of the carpeting. It, whatever he can, he'll use to bring about discord and strife. Where you know you want to be focusing in on what God is trying to do, the devil brings people in who are going to disrupt that and bring about strife in the church. Did I see a hand? Right here? 396. Great Controversy 396. No problem. That particular one I added later, I think. Yeah, okay. Um, they act with energy and deceit. That is, Satan and the and his deceptions and his, and his cohorts work with tremendous energy. Don't you wish you had the energy that... Well, I don't want to say that quite that way. <laughs> It's amazing that the devil, he, he doesn't have to sleep at night. He just is, he and his, and his cohorts are out there stirring up trouble while you're sleeping. And you get up in the morning and you find out all the strife that they've caused. Anyway, fanaticism, as I already mentioned you, warnings about going to the opposite extremes of what God is seeking to lead us to. This is a very dangerous area, folks. And you and I have to pray that we never fall into that trap. Those are tools of Satan. There are those who come along claiming that they have new light. And we know that new light could come, but we always test that new light by the Word of God. And the truth is, if we would just live up to the light we have, we'd be a lot stronger than we are. Ele exactly. Elements of genuine new light are there. We need to know what they are. Those, that new light will never contradict where we already have come to. And even that gets to be a challenge today. There's one particular challenging doctrine out there that's not from the Bible. But people are saying, well, this is actually the way it was before, and, and the church went the opposite direction. No, that's part of the challenge today. And I can't get into all of that, but there is something that will protect us, and that is by trusting in the Word of God and following with Him and realizing that Jesus has told us He will guide us through this difficult time. Yes? I think it's both in there as well. And when I say page 31 and 32, that's the book, this book. Yeah, this is preparation for the final crisis. Okay. Yes, that that when it says uh, like that, it's um, it's referring to the book itself, where some of those things are mentioned. Thank you. That's a good question. It's not referring to uh, one of Ellen White's books. Now there are some characteristics of the reform that we want to keep in mind, and that is that they're one hundred percent in harmony with the Bible. So if you don't know your Bible, you won't know whether they're in harmony or not. You and I must know the Word of God. I told you yesterday about 
some of the statistics that are out there, people not studying the Bible, now is the time that we need to be doing that. I already mentioned the fact that they won't contradict basic truth. And we also need to realize that genuine reformers are humble. False reformers tend to be very egotistical. Why? Because Satan is egotistical. And Satan, when he is the one who's generating the so-called reform, and it seems to be centering around a person, and, and and that person seems to be very egotistical, the Spirit of God is not the one who's doing the leading there. Anyway, there are some quotations on page 32 of this book that will help you with that, and that's what that reference is to. So I'm going to keep moving ahead, because I want to make sure we have time to spend in our most critical area here. Some of the characteristics of true reformation include what you see on the screen right now, a spirit of prayer. Folks, the needs that we have today, the days in which we live, is a call to prayer. I don't mean the blessing at breakfast and lunch and supper. I mean serious time with God, searching the Word of God, and spending time in prayer and communion with Him. That leads to us to sincere conversion because as we in our relationship with God, He's showing us, you know, when I study the Word of God, I'm, I'm not looking there to find out all the things that I can uh, point out in other people's lives. I'm looking there to find out what He's telling me I need to be doing in my life, what He wants to change in my life what he needs to clean out of my life. And it's not always a fun process, like almost never. And it leads to change and conversion. And that's what's taking place where there is a genuine reformation. You also know it's not a genuine reformation if it doesn't lead to an advancement of the message of God going to others. It becomes self-denying missionary work. I, and how many of you have ever been to a GYC session? Now, many of us are too old to go to GYC. doesn't mean you don't go. It just means we're too old to go with the discounted prices or the regular prices. We pay extra. But when we go to GYC, and if you haven't been, I encourage you to go, or at least watch it online or do something. But you know, I, I, don't, I cannot forget the time when... Um, What's his name? It was a fellow that used to be a pastor here in Michigan. His father was also here in Michigan, and his name just went right out of my head. But anyway, he has been leading in the Far East, and he got up and he made a call, and he said, I'm looking for people who will come to the Far East, and I'm going to tell you I can't guarantee that you'll come back alive. Now that is conversion, and that is self-denying missionary work. You and I are, do you ever leave your house and uh, say to your husband or wife, I'm going to go out witnessing today and knock on a few doors. I may not come back alive, but I'm out going, I'm going out there. Most of us are afraid to knock on the door, period, right? But we need self-denying missionary workers. Ellen White talks about that in Christian service. And it's also filled with praise and thanksgiving. This Reformation is filled with praise and honor and thanksgiving to God for what He is doing and what He is accomplishing. A genuine Reformation is what God is going to bring to His people. He will bring it about. 
The heart of that Reformation is the Laodicean message. The Bible makes that clear because the message is in Revelation chapter 3. It's for the church that's the last of the seven. It is a message that we know is for our time because Ellen White said it is. It is a message that you and I need to be heeding and looking at much more closely than we do. We need to study it in our churches and we need to help each other and encourage each other through prayer and fellowship to allow the working of the Spirit of God and Jesus to do His work in our hearts as the Laodicean message brings out. We're going into that in a moment. What is this message? Summarize it as a message of justification by what? Not works? It's a message of justification by faith. It is faith in not myself, not my pastor, but Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. An acceptance of this message will bring a genuine conversion. It will bring a separation from the world, and it will bring us to the final victory. That separation from the world, the world is attempting to be so attractive to us today. Hollywood makes evil look great. You know, i got to tell you, I don't think Hollywood even makes evil look good. It's looking worse and worse and worse. And, and for some, pre some reason, people seem to like worse. Anyway, another, another point. We... All he has to do is keep producing that stuff, doesn't he? Exactly. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. It's all right. It's all right. We're preaching about the same thing, so we're okay. Let's keep going. All of this is has a challenge, and that is human beings like you and me. And it is this message that wants to bring change to us. And if we respond to it, it will bring change. But if we don't, that rejection is what will lead to the shaking. And we will look at that a little bit more in depth in the days ahead. The Laodicean message, it's a severe message. I mean severe because it's a serious going to the heart of the problem message. But it is given by the one who is that surgeon that does the work in love. He does it out of his caring for us and out of his concern that we will die in our sins if he is not allowed to deliver us from our sins. That's why he says, Thou art lukewarm. To be lukewarm is to profess to have the truth, but to not allow that truth to really work in our hearts and lives. When we say we have that truth, but we have no fervor and we have no devotion to God, and it leads us to going to church on Sabbath morning, we might make it for Sabbath school, we might not make it to Sabbath school. Well, you get there for church, we get home, don't even stay for potluck, don't have the time to do that, got other things to do, no time to be involved in spending time sharing the message with other people, don't come to prayer meeting, don't be involved in the church, and that's our lives. That's a lack of fervor and devotion. It's one of the signs that's going on in our lives. 
I warned you, I gave you a chance to leave. (laughs) But the Spirit of God is kind to us, isn't he? And Jesus loves us. That's why he wants to spend time with us. I don't go to to a place where prayer is being uh, being shared and fellowship with Christian believers because, Lord, please give me some brownie points. I'm here today. No, because I'm going there to meet my Savior, and He wants to speak to me, and He wants to draw me closer to Him. And there are times when I need to be around fellow believers because being around those believers actually draws me closer to Jesus. It can't just be on my knees all the time. All of those are needed. Yes, it's a severe message given in love, and it's evidence that it's not working in our lives if it doesn't lead to dedicated service. But Jesus wants to work that grace into our hearts, and when it's not working, we know it's lacking. You see, Jesus said in Revelation chapter Three, he said, I will spew you out of my mouth. That tells us that lukewarmness is not something that Jesus loves. Anybody here? Well, you know what? I've gotten used to tepid water, okay? And I like it. I don't like cold water, and I don't like hot water when it comes to drinking water. But I do like hot food. And I do like, I don't like cold soup. And you know, I mean, you just think about all those things and the things that are lukewarm. And when I'm really thirsty and it's hot outside, cold does feel good. All right, those analogies aside, lukewarmness is an evidence of the fact that there's something not going on in my heart and my life, and it needs to lead to change. The message that Jesus is trying to bring to us and is at the heart of the Reformation is the fact that we may be spiritually infatuated with ourselves. We may be justifying ourselves, but this is a condition of deception, of deceiving ourselves, and there's nothing worse than self-deception. Have you ever talked to somebody who is so deceived that you can't, you can't even point them in the direction of the Bible? You ever talk to people like that? They just don't even want to hear it. They're so deceived, they don't want to. Only the Spirit of God can get to those people. But if we are those ones that are deceived, and no one can help us, we're not walking in that light, then we are to be challenged. The call of God in this message is to repent. And that repentance is defined as not just saying, I'm sorry, But it's repentance that does what? It leads to change, doesn't it? And self-righteousness is something we need to replace with Christ's righteousness. That's what he wants for us. The message we are promised, the Laodicean message will do its work. So, So let's spend a little bit of time talking about that message now coming from the true witness, coming from the one who knows us as individuals like nobody else does, the one who loves us enough to die on the cross. He is the one who's coming to us as the true witness 
And with the Laodicean message, not only does he provide the diagnosis, but he also provides the remedy. Now, I don't know how many of you are involved in the medical profession or anybody here might be a medical doctor. Doctors are not my favorite place to go. Okay? But when I go to the doctor, and especially if I'm sick or I know something's not quite right the way it should be, I don't mind going to the doctor when I go to the doctor and the doctor says, this is your problem, and doesn't stop there, but then says, this is the solution. What's not fun is going to the doctor, and I know some of you have had that experience, and says, I don't have a solution. But Jesus looks at us and he says, you've got a problem. It's terminal. But I can solve it. I have the solution. He says about us that we, are, we think we're rich when we are really in poverty. He says, you think you're clothed, but you're really naked. He says, you think that you can see, but you're really blind. That's a terrible condition to be in. And we're in it. We are in it. But Ellen White tells us that there are some solutions to this, and we're going to look at it a little bit more in depth. First of all, what is that gold that is tried in the fire that Jesus talks about in Revelation chapter 3. What is that gold? That gold is faith and love that Jesus brings to us. You and I can't even generate faith. Remember the poor man, <clears throat> his son was demon-possessed. Jesus and his three disciples were on the mount where the transfiguration took place, and they came down off of that mount and the rest of the disciples were gathered around, uh, where a crowd was gathered around them, and they were desperately trying to solve a problem, in this case, a demon-possessed child. And Jesus comes among them and says, what's wrong? And the man says, I've got a son, and he's possessed, and I, I, we can't, the disciples don't seem to be able to solve the problem. And Jesus says to him, do you have faith? Do you have faith? And the man says, I have faith, but help my lack of faith. And Jesus responded to him, even in his lack of faith, and said, I can solve your problem. That's what he's saying to you and to me. Faith comes from him. We don't have faith. We don't generate faith. He is the one who gives us faith. We come to him every day, Lord, give me more faith. And as I test out the, what he asked me to do and go through the struggles of that day. But through prayer, I see a solution and a resolution to whatever challenge I'm facing that day. And I see God working and I say, Lord, thank you. You're strengthening my faith. You're showing me that even though this is a little thing to me, you care about it. And I can trust you with the little things. I can trust you with the big things. Sometimes he brings the big things to also help us with that. What about the white raiment? We need to look at that a little bit more. We'll come back to that in a moment. I got ahead of myself a little bit. Love, guiding principle in the Christian life. 
It's a power for transforming the life. It is from part of the fruit of the Spirit. And with faith, we obtain love by His dwelling in us. And the faith grasps onto the power of God and makes victory ours through His promises. Justification by faith, the white raiment. There's a parable that is remind, we're reminded of in this book. I want to remind you of it as well. It's the parable in Matthew where Jesus told the story of the wedding garment and the man who, along with others, are invited to the wedding. And people don't want to come. Finally, they go out in the highways and the byways and they bring these people in and they come into the, to the wedding. And then there's this one man as as the um, the wedding master looks out over the over the people that are there, he sees everybody dressed appropriately except for one guy who's in his filthy rags. That's you and me. You and I are the ones who are dressed in filthy rags. The white raiment we are told is the righteousness of Christ. Sin, which is the filthy rags that we have, is what separates us from God, and it results in sorrow and guilt and disaster in our life. Sometimes it's very obvious by the things that happen to us. Other times it may be more subtle. But the bottom line is that that sin that we cling to separates between ourselves and God. And Jesus said, I've got a solution for that. I have my righteousness to give you. But Lord, I'm not good enough. You're right. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough to accept and to receive the righteousness of Christ. But there's nothing in that parable that says that that man needed to be better than he was or needed to pay more money than he did or whatever. He was handed that robe of righteousness when he came to the wedding. You and I, when we come to Jesus, he says, I have what you need. You just need to stay with me. I have the solution to your problem. Man seeks help. We always do. We can even begin to realize most of us know we're in trouble. Some of us don't. But most of us know that we're in trouble, that we need help. But we have two ways of trying to get it. One is by our own efforts. There's a, there are whole denominations that are built on the basis of solving my own problem. There are whole religions based upon solving my own problems. That's what makes it different. That's why I can't be a Muslim, with all due respect. I cannot be, I cannot go to Confucius. I cannot become a Hindu. All of those are religions based upon works, trying to find a way to solve my own problem. I, I, I tell you what, that's a dead-end road, right? It's a dead-end road. My own efforts, though, can come into Christianity in very subtle ways. And my own works can come into the Seventh-day Adventist Christian's life just as really as it comes into anybody else's life. I'm not saved because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm saved because I'm surrendered to Jesus Christ. 
And if I start going a different direction and think that my Sabbath keeping or my eating or my whatever is going to save me, then I am going to, with everyone else, lose out on eternal life. Because it's faith in Christ that brings the results in my life. The Laodicean condition, catch this part, tends to self-righteousness. Why? Why? Somebody tell me, why does the Laodicean condition lead me more to be more likely self-righteous? Why does it? Why? We think we're something we're not. We think we already have the solution. That's why this message is so critical. That's why in the late 1800s, as this message really started to come to the surface, Ellen White was trying to help the people during those days to understand the condition of their own hearts and those that were resisting it. You know there were people resisting that message that we look back on with with, uh, an amazingly high esteem, and yet they were turning their back on that message? Now, I didn't say they wouldn't be saved. I'm not saying any of that stuff. I'm saying they were major leaders in the church. But when the Laodicean message came up, they could not let go of their belief that the law was their savior. And even though they wouldn't, wouldn't say that, they were actually living that way and they were actually teaching that way, that the law was their savior. And, and Ellen White, Jesus trying to get the message through to his people, was trying to help them understand that their understanding of the way that we should live and our understanding was actually righteousness by works and it didn't work. That's why the Laodicean message was so needed for God's people then and why it's so needed now. Christ's robe is our only hope. And we receive it under two conditions. The first one is repentance and a surrender of self. Repentance and a surrender of self. The message of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 makes that abundantly clear. That you and I receive this gift from Him by surrendering ourselves to Him through repentance. And I think we need to keep going because we're going to see some things that will help us in relationship to this. In my, uh, in um, Messages to Young People, page 35, Ellen White speaks of the fact that the righteousness of Christ is the way that we are justified. We are justified by the righteousness of Christ. Now, folks, I'm going to get into an area today that it's really easy to wander down a lot of corners back and forth. There are whole books written on the issues of righteousness by faith and salvation by faith and imparted righteousness and imputed righteousness and all of that. And I'm not trying to downplay that. But I'm also not trying to deal with every single nuance and every little curve that we might have in relationship to this issue. Our solution and my solution is Jesus. And Jesus will lead us to the truth that we need. And 
And, and so I, I just want to caution you that where we're going has some curves in it and some direction here, but let's not take ourselves down those curves. Let's try to keep simply moving ahead to get the basic understanding because I believe that's what's going to lead us closer to Jesus. All right? So I just want to warn you, there are some little nuances here and you may have some that you might think of, but I want to try to keep this as simple as we can because I believe the gospel is simple. First of all, righteousness by which we are justified is imputed to the, to us. Do you know what that means? What does imputed mean to you? Somebody tell me. Given? Okay, good. I'm sorry? Okay, 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 good. Anybody else? Okay. All right, so this is something that happens, if I can put it this way, in an instant, in a moment of time. When I come to Jesus, I have nothing to give to him. And he says, okay, I'll take you the way you are, right? Amen? I'm going to take you the way you are. And I'm going to give you my righteousness. That's why he could say to the thief on the cross, who at that moment was giving his life into the hands of Jesus, Jesus can say, I will see you in heaven. I will see you in heaven. You will be in heaven with me. Because his righteousness was being imputed to that thief on the cross at that moment of time. Right? He didn't have time to develop a sanctified life. He was on the cross. He was going to be dead in the next few minutes. It was over for him. It was done. But Jesus had what he needed at that particular moment. As Ellen White puts it, it is our right to heaven. She says it is what justifies us and that we receive it entirely by faith. I have no money to give. I have no good works to give. I have nothing to provide to Jesus except my filthy rags and my sinful life. And Jesus says, that's all I need. That's not a fair exchange by any means. But the, the message of the Laodicean to the Laodicean church is, you have this problem, and that is what I have to give you in exchange. I will give you what you need. The righteousness of Christ is also that by which we are sanctified. The process is an ongoing process in our lives. The righteousness of Christ is not just given to us and imputed to us in an instant when we come to him, but Jesus doesn't want to abandon us and he doesn't leave us alone after that time. He continues to live in our lives and to work in our hearts. And that leads to the experience of what we speak of as imparted righteousness. Words up here on the screen. It's in your book. I wish I had time to go through and read all the quotations from Ellen White there. But I am seeking to lead you to a place where you can continue to search this out in depth for yourself. But her statement in regard to this is very clear. That the righteousness by which uh, we are saved in an instant is that which gives us title to heaven at that moment. And that it is imputed. But then there is righteousness that continues in our lives over the rest of our lives. And it is imparted to us. It sanctifies us and it transforms our characters providing us 
fitness for heaven. The word that she used. It is, it is so remarkable to me how Jesus, in his mercy, gave that special gift of Ellen White's ministry to us. And it makes it so clear and so simple. It, it is, I'm my, my right and title to heaven. Me? No. Jesus is my right and title. Hey, hey, I'm with him. <laughs> when I get to the gate, so to speak, that analogy we use, I'm with him. Now, what you don't want him to say is, I don't know who he is. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so what we recognize is that what he does for us in the beginning, he continues to do on a daily basis. But where you and I enter into trouble in our lives, and where a lot of the world today in the Christian church, I'll, I'll not deal with the rest of the, of the world, that's challenging enough. But in the Christian world, a lot of the Christian world does not understand the true power of the gospel. Many Christians see it only as that moment in time where you are saved, but they don't see it as having power to change you in your life. I wish the Methodists of today were the Methodists of John Wesley's day. If they were the Methodists of John Wesley's day, John Wesley got this part. He understood that the gospel will change people, not only save them for an instant, but save them for, for, from their sins. That's why when John Wesley and his team would come into a city in England or some other place, the bars would all go out of business because they believed that Jesus could change people's lives, and he did. He took the drunkard out of the streets, he took the people out of the bars, and he brought them to church, and they not only came to church, but their lives were changed, and they didn't want to go back to the bars. The bars could handle it for a couple of days, but when the bars didn't get anybody for weeks and months and years, they had to close. Hallelujah. That's what Jesus wants to do in our lives. That, to me, is an illustration of the righteousness by which we are sanctified in Jesus the fitness for heaven, the work that he wants to continue to do in our lives. The righteousness by which I am saved that is imputed to me when I begin my life, I receive by faith. But the righteousness that I receive from Christ that is imparted to me, I receive by faith. The but word doesn't belong there, does it? It's not but, it's and. The righteousness that I receive that's imparted to me and is my fitness for heaven also comes by faith. I want to keep this balanced. There's a chart in your book, those of you who have purchased the book, and it is up there, right? <laughs> Somebody tell me it is up there. I want to make sure it is there. There's a chart here. There are variations of this chart, and there are nuances that you see in a lot of different places, but it does help to make a point. You and I, as individuals, we come in our lives. We're on a downhill slide. That's where we are. We're on a downhill slide. We're going down, down, down. If we use the analogy a lot of people like to use, we're headed to perdition. Is exactly right. Bible uses the word hell. That's really where we're headed. We're not talking about a place buried down here. We're talking about 
the state of experience where we are out of connection with Christ and that hellfire that comes after the third coming of Jesus that destroys the wicked forever. That's where we're headed. That's what's going on here. But when we come to the foot of the cross and there's a change, that's imputed righteousness that comes to us. It's justification. It's our title to heaven. We receive it by faith and it's an instantaneous work. I don't have to go out and convince somebody I'm good enough to be saved. When I come in whatever state I am and give my heart and my life to Jesus and my life has changed, that is that imputed righteousness. But then my life and my journey with Jesus continues on. Instead of going this direction, I'm going another direction. And people, we talk a little bit about how these things all happen, but the bottom line is I'm growing just like a stalk of corn grows. And at every stage along the way, it's perfect. It may not be where it needs to be, but it is where it needs to be in my relationship with Jesus. When I give my life to Jesus, I may not be perfect today. You can ask my wife if you like. But I have given my life to Jesus, and I know that Jesus loves me. And I'm saying, Lord, what I said today or what I did today, I know that was the wrong thing for me to do. Please forgive me, and please continue that work in my heart and my life. And this continued growth experience with Jesus is still by faith. It's not by my works. It's not by anything that we do. But before we finish today, we do need to have a little bit of a conversation. And I want to share a couple of things with you that help to kind of put this all in the proper perspective. I'll get there in just a moment. Christ's righteousness provides sanctification as well as justification. Sanctification is that lifelong experience of growth. Justification is our title to heaven. Sanctification, our fitness for heaven. Making that point, this is the Laodicean message. This is what's coming out here, what Jesus is trying to help us to understand. The secret of victory is in faith. We have not yet attained perfection by the imparted righteousness that is supplied by Christ's imputed righteousness. It's an ongoing experience for us. Provision is made for our failure. 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, tells us that if we sin, Jesus is our Savior. He is our advocate. He is the one who is there for us. We need Him still. It's an ongoing, continual process. And there is this analogy of trying to illustrate what this is like, the imputed righteousness, the imparted righteousness, and at each place. The only problem I have with that, it, it seems to be implying that somewhere along the way I'm getting so good here and pretty soon I'm not going to need Jesus anymore. That isn't going to happen. That's the, one of the problems we have with these charts. They're illustrations trying to help us to understand a principle that we're going to study through all eternity. We're always going to need Jesus. We're always going to need Jesus. He is our Savior. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 John 2 verse 1, sure. But let's put a couple things in perspective. There are three statements from Ellen White. They're in your book. And I don't remember what pages they are on, but the statements themselves are here on the screen. 
I think it's right near the end of chapter one of the book. I, let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, 46, is that where it is? 46, 47, where is it? Somewhere around there? Yeah, it's anywhere out there. Anyway, it's somewhere that where, but here are the references. And I want you to look at these carefully. She says, when it is in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end, Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man's best service, and he makes up for the deficiency with his own divine merit. We need Jesus. We don't need to be fretting. But we do need to recognize that we need ISAV to be seeing where the challenges are. We're told that the closer we get to Jesus, the worse we look. And it's true, because any sin in our lives is terrible. And the closer you get to Jesus and you see him in his perfect righteousness, you say, Lord, I can't be like that. I don't have any hope. There are times when I say, Lord, seriously, this is what you're trying to take this person here and you're going to do this with that person? And Jesus has to remind me that it's not this person, it's that person that's doing this. And that I have to stay close to him and be in connection with him. That's one of the reasons I preach this message. I need to preach it to remind me. She continues and she says, But he will not accept those who claim to have faith in him and yet are disloyal to his father's commandment. You see, this is, is it in the, it's in the notes. That's what I mean in, in the, in the handout I gave you. That's right. That's where it is. Thank you. I did something right. <laughs> so you have it right then. You're following along with me. Great. Thank you for the reminder. I can't remember where I put everything. We hear a great deal, she says. Now, this is the sentence I want you to catch. We hear a great deal about faith, but we need to hear a great deal more about works. Does that shock you? We have to be reminded, I believe, this is what Ellen White is saying, that the Christianity that Jesus is speaking of in the Laodicean message is not a mamby-pamby religion or a mamby-pamby theology. It's a gospel message that is powerful enough to change my life and to change it on a daily basis. And meaning, the meaning of changing my life is that if I'm squabbling with my church fellow church members all the time and I claim that I'm drawing closer to Jesus, I may have to stop and take a look at that and realize I'm not. I need the eye salve that Jesus has promised to give me in the Laodicean message to open my eyes to my, my need and that I'm the one who's doing the squabbling. I'm the one who's causing the problem. I'm the one who's not following Matthew 18. I'm the one who's not doing what I should do and Jesus wants to change that because it is a church that is reflecting Jesus that is going to attract people to the world and if we are fighting with each other, they're not attracted to us. Many are deceiving, he continues, deceiving their own souls by living an easygoing, accommodating, crossless religion. Wow. Is that powerful? But Jesus says, I, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. That's why I said, are you ready for this class? You really want to go on with this class? Because now we're going from the fun stuff, the exciting stuff, the, the stuff that, that gets people's blood rolling. And now we're moving to the stuff that scares people and makes people fearful because they say, I can't do it. And they're right. But this is the place where we need to be because when Jesus starts to open our eyes, we begin to see not only the problem we have, but we also see him standing there willing to help us. Continuing on, she says, higher than in another place in education, she says, higher than the highest human thought can reach is God's ideal for his children. You and I are setting such a low standard down here for ourselves and for others, realizing that God is a big God and he has a high standard for us, not one that we can't attain. He would never call us to do something that we would never be able to see and experience in our lives. She says godliness, God-likeness is the goal to be reached. Read that statement outside of the context of Jesus, and I'm overwhelmed. But read it in the context of Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is God-like. Jesus is God, and he wants to help us be experience God-likeness in us. Now, there was no heavy theology in that Jesus is God-like. I am trying simply to make a point that he is God and that he knows how to do this work. And if he wants us to be godlike, then he's the one who is going to impart that power to us. Before the statement there, uh, before the student, I'm sorry, she continues, there is opened a path of continual progress. He has an object to achieve, a standard to attain that includes everything good and pure and noble. He will advance as fast and as far as possible in every branch of true knowledge, but his efforts will be directed to objects as much higher than mere selfish and temporal interests as the heavens are higher than the earth. Only the Spirit of God, only Jesus giving us eyesight can help us to see when things are destroying us. I don't care if it's television or the computer or the phone or, or, or what we read or where we go or what we wear. I don't care what it is. Whatever it is that Jesus says, those things are leading away from me and he needs to help us to be able to see that. And he promises that he will because our selfish hearts would keep us connected with what's down here. But his goal for us is as high as the heavens are. And that's because that's where he is. And he's preparing us for that place. By the wedding garment in the parable, she says in Christ Object Lessons, page 310, is represented the pure and spotless character which Christ's true followers will possess. To the church it is given that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The fine linen, says the scripture, is the righteousness of the saints. It is the righteousness, and I underline this part, it is the righteousness of Christ, his unblemished character, that through faith is imparted to all who receive him as their personal Savior. The secret to victory is in faith, where that word go, 
is in faith in Christ, receiving His unblemished character that is imparted to us when daily we uh, reach out to Him and accept Him as our personal Savior. So to conclude today, the Laodicean message is therefore a call to reformation. It is a call to develop a character that is developed by a battle with self. But victory is promised. Please don't go away from here discouraged. I remember in my early ministry some long time ago, and I was preaching about righteousness by faith, and I was talking about some of these kinds of things. And I remember one of the church members coming out, bless his heart, his name is Howard. Not his last name, his first name. And Howard came out, and he was so discouraged after listening to me preach about what God wanted to do in our lives. And I realized that part of the problem is I didn't explain it so well. But if I've not explained it too well, I want you to know that Jesus is going to explain it to you very well. He's promised to do you that. That's what the Laodicean message is all about. And that message to the Laodiceans is not a, vic- a message of defeat. It is a message of victory. Probably went out on my screen again, didn't I? It's a message of hope and victory. He is going to take you and bring you into the experience He wants you to have. That's what that Laodicean message is. Don't be afraid to study the Laodicean message because that's where the victory is. It is in Jesus saying, I'm knocking at the door. Just let me in. I want to come in and I will lead to the solution that you want in your life. Pathway to victory is to renounce self to fully surrender to Christ, to depend on Him moment by moment. And all of this is by faith, believing that the victory is yours. Are you grateful for the victory in Jesus today? Raise your hand and say, Lord, thank you for the victory that you have promised. One last statement. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the new heart. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. It is a supernatural work, hallelujah for that, bringing a supernatural element into human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress. Whose fortress? His fortress with a capital H. That's Jesus' fortress, which he holds in a revolted world, and he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. Go away from here. He can't touch you. Hallelujah. He can't touch you. Well, that's the message that Lord wants us to have from the Laodicean message today. Praise the Lord. He cares about us. Tomorrow we're going to move into some of the other things that are coming in this crisis, which you and I need to prepare for. Because it's, It's encouraging to know that victory is in Jesus, and that's where we need to be. But I dare say that our church is facing some really challenging times. What does it mean for us? And what is God going to do to help us get through that time? What are the challenges we might experience? And what are the solutions to those? 
Jesus is always the solution. But we're going to talk about some of those things in detail tomorrow. We look forward to seeing you there. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, how grateful we are for Jesus. How grateful we are also that we're not defeated Christians, but we are victorious Christians in Jesus. Lord, there are times when I don't feel victorious, and I'm sure that's true of those in this room along with me. But when my eyes are on myself, I'm certainly not victorious. That my hand is in the hand of Jesus. You have promised to us victory against any assault of Satan. So, Lord, we leave this room and we go back out there to other classes and other opportunities. Somewhere along the line, the devil may try to assault us, but we know that you have promised then to be with us and to give us victory. Continue to lead us moment by moment. Thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.